Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. I'm Jason Lee, and this is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. On this episode, we're joined by Edward K. Brass. He's a Salt Lake City defense attorney, and we're going to be discussing criminal justice as it relates to officer-involved shootings and violence against people of color and the mentally ill. I want to say thank you to Ed. I want to say thank you to Ed for joining me. You're welcome. So, Ed, uh, I'm hoping you could kind of uh, shed some light on the the circumstance that uh, police are put in. Oftentimes, it's it's a, a bit above what they've been trained for in addressing situations where someone with a mentally ill uh, condition has an episode and they've, uh, the police are called out to kind of handle it. But in, unfortunately, it, it often results in uh, violence being used because that's kind of where the police's training is and it isn't necessarily conducive to uh, de-escalating the situation with those who have mental illness. Mental illness. I think that's exactly right. And, and my, my feeling is that the way that we're going to have to address this going forward is either train police officers uh, substantially in social work and psychology, or we're going to have to learn to uh, do a better job of assessing the nature of the call that they're being sent out on. And in some of these cases that clearly involve mental health issues to send someone who has actual social work training with them uh, or someone who has psychology uh, in their background to go out and address the situation. As a person, as a person who's kind of, who's kind of dealt for over years in your career, what's been um, how, how how has how has it been involved in your uh, job as a defense attorney? How often do you come across situations where mentally ill people come in contact with law enforcement? Every single day. If if we could cure mental illness, if we had an effective way to deal with mental health treatment rather than lock people up and put them in prison or jail so that we don't have to see them, so they're off the street. If we could deal with that effectively, uh, I would probably be out of business. I I firmly believe that my workload would go down somewhere 75, 80%. So more than half of your cases uh, cases involve some kind of, some level of mental illness? No question about it. It's just a matter of degree. I mean, that's kind of odd to me. I I don't know that I understood that. So in, in that way, this really play, plays into, it seems, uh, just criminal justice in general, that people like yourself and, and obviously the people you, uh, that are your clients, they, they have some level on the spectrum of mental illness. Of mental illness. It does, very frequently. I just want to get a sense of, so do the prosecutors know this? Yeah, sure they do. 
then why don't they, why don't they, uh, <laughs> why aren't they more involved in this push to uh, offer a mental health solution rather than a punishment solution, I guess? But there, there are some things that are being done to address that. There's a specialty court now, mental health court, that's built on the drug court model, where people who have mental health issues can earn their way uh, out of their charges or to lesser charges, provided that the nature of their offense qualifies, you know, provided that they cooperate, uh, where they agree to, to take their medication as they're supposed to take their medication, go to counseling as they're supposed to be counseled, show up for court on a regular basis, and if they do all the things that are expected of them, uh, then, like I said, their charges could be dismissed. So the courts are trying to do something about this. Prosecutors are trying to do something about this. But but uh, what the general public doesn't understand is that for mental illness to be a defense, uh, you have to be so mentally ill that you don't realize that you're causing harm to another person. So let me give you an example. Uh, if if I believed that you were possessed by Satan and Satan was telling you that you had to kill me and I harmed you in some way, that would be no defense to me. But if I believed that you were a ham sandwich that was attacking me in some way and meant to do me harm, uh, that would be a defense. You can't believe that it's another person, no matter how strange and bizarre your delusion may be, you can't believe that you're actually interacting for another person with another person to qualify for a mental health defense. Oftentimes, obviously, people who are mentally ill, don't, they're not in their right minds, and uh, their delusions can often seem as real to them as what true reality is to someone like you and I. That's exactly right. That's the defense that's statutorily adopted in Utah. There has been a push to broaden it back to the uh, what's called the McNaughton Rule, which is different, uh, but so far that's been rejected by the legislature. In fact, there was a push in the last legislature to go back to the the Naughton rule, McNaughton rule. I'm sorry, which which uh, is basically the inability to tell the difference between right and wrong uh, for mental health reasons. Uh, that was not adopted by the legislature. It was it was uh, rejected. In fact, so we still have this rule where you have to be so mentally ill that you don't you don't understand that that, that you're dealing with another human being in order to qualify for a mental health defense. It seems, it as, seems though as though our state lawmakers, because they're, they're average people, I mean, they're, they're just citizens, uh, that they may need a little more uh, information to have a better understanding of what, how to maybe handle this situation so that it, it, there is a, a more equi equitable solution that uh, helps th those who are potential suspects as well as prevents law enforcement from having to deal with something they already have enough to deal with, as it turns out. Uh, that may be a, a bit beyond their training. That's exactly right. It is well beyond their training. I, I'm sure that there's training in progress now for police departments to deal with mental health issues on a regular basis. But these people who are police officers didn't become police officers to be social workers or to be psychologists. And so, you know, to adopt that training later on in your career is not going to be an easy task. That's why even though it would cost money, I think in the long run, uh, and money is what drives the criminal justice system, let's be honest about it. In the long run, if we were to have social workers and psychologists uh, as employees of the police department, I believe that would reduce the violence that there is in the streets. You know, the you know what, the reason I, I, I brought this topic up was because uh, more recently in Salt Lake City, we had a 13-year-old 13 13 -year autistic boy who was actually shot by police 
during what was considered, uh, what was described as a violent mental health uh, uh, crisis situation. And you would think that there would have been another way to resolve that, maybe de-escalated in a way that somehow didn't involve shooting uh, that young man. And I know there's uh, situations around the country. There was one in New York State where uh, I believe it was Rochester, where a naked man was having an episode, and he eventually was actually uh, asphyxiated uh, during his police interaction. There seems to be this circumstance where police are put in a little bit over their heads, and uh, those who are the victims in this case, uh, they, they're also put in a situation that unfortunately uh, can be very detrimental to their, to their very survival. Very survival. Listen, I've been doing what I do for a very long time, and so I'm going to tell you an anecdote that, that puts it into context for me, because this is a situation that I've never been able to get out of my head my entire uh, professional career. Uh, when I was a young lawyer, I was leaving the, the health and physical education building at the University of Utah, and I walked out into a situation where a young man who clearly had some mental health disabilities was waving around. Uh, what appeared to me to be a very real firearm. Uh, and he was surrounded by three University of Utah police officers who had their guns drawn at him. And, you know, even though I'd just been a lawyer for a short period of time, I obviously knew that, that uh, they would be well within their rights to dispatch him uh, into the next life because of their situation, because it did appear that he was armed with a weapon and he wouldn't put it down. Well, the officers didn't shoot him. They ultimately persuaded him to put the, the, the weapon down, and it turned out to be a toy that was just a realistic-looking weapon. They took him into custody. I don't know what happened to him after that, but that was, that was many years ago. And now we talk about the, the young autistic boy here in Salt Lake, and I don't know that that's so much of a change in policing per se. I think it's a change in the, the way our society has become. We live in a much more violent world today than we did back when that event took place that I just related to you. We live in a world of fear now. Everyone is afraid of everyone else. Everyone who's different from, from us, we fear. And so uh, these police officers go out on these calls with, with maybe inadequate mental health training. They don't know what they're going to get. They're told that there's somebody who's having a violent episode of some sort. Uh, and they get there, and, and I haven't seen the video. I don't know what the circumstances are, but because we, because we live in this world of heightened fear, uh, they react immediately with violence. You know, there's a violent situation. We're going to escalate the violence, and we're, we're going, we feel that we're justified in shooting this young man. I suppose that situation will work its way through the courts, and we'll find out whether it was justified. But it just seems to me that the change that I've seen in the criminal justice systems over the years is that everyone on both sides are, are more likely to resort to violent behavior than once was the case. When we come back, back I want to uh, switch this a little bit to uh, incidents so frequently uh, because there's been mass protests around this country regarding police shootings and involving people of color. And I just want to get, again, uh, your, your thoughts on how the criminal justice treat, uh, system treats these circumstances and what the movements today might do, if anything, to change the way things have been uh, handled between law enforcement and between those that they are sworn to protect and serve. You're listening to Voices of Reason.
It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back. I'm Jason Lee, and this is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm joined today by Edward K. Brass. He's a Salt Lake City defense attorney. And we've been discussing up until now uh, police-involved in, uh, shootings and violence against uh, people with mental illness. And I want to switch that a little bit to something that's become kind of a, a, a daily nationwide headline, and that is uh, police interaction with people of color. And uh, there's, like I said, there, there's been so many cases. More recently, George Floyd's... Uh, death on in, in, in videotape that went viral has really kind of uh, ignited a worldwide call for the ch- changes in the way police handle situations, particularly regarding those who are uh, poor and oftentimes of color. And I, as, as a defense attorney, I'm sure you have watched different kinds of circumstances uh, play out over the years. And I, just your thoughts on how this seems to be playing out so frequently and unfortunately involving uh, violence and death when it rec- uh, with regard to the, uh, the victims. And, and do, you, do you see anything that has changed or has made it seem worse than it uh, used to be? It, well, I don't think that it is worse than it used I hate to say that, but I don't think that it is worse, you know, I don't put that word in quotes, than it used to be. People have really just gotten tired of it uh, and they're willing to do something about it. They're willing to stand up and say, no more of this. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. That's the change, is that the general public has become sick and tired of the number of these homicides that take place. You know, uh, I have friends of mine who are uh, uh, Caucasian, and I try to explain to them, you know, their experience with police would be very different than mine. And as a, as a young person, I don't know that I had this... Uh, trepidation that I have today with police officers. Like, I, I literally am afraid to come in contact with a police officer these days, whether I, it's a, um, usually it would be a traffic uh, issue or something like that. But I, because of what has happened, I have a very real fear of what might transpire, even if I don't do anything wrong. And uh, nothing I can do will change that, because if I try to defend myself in a certain circumstance that I feel threatened, I then would be committing a crime. It, uh, have, what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the, the way the psychology may be changing among those who, who may be of color, uh, black and brown, and that they, they actually are fearful for their lives? Well, I, I mean, it breaks my heart for my friends who have to tell their children uh, how to interact with police officers uh, when they're pulled over for a traffic offense like you described, how different that is from the way that I've been able to tell my own children how to interact with police officers in those circumstances. You, because all you have to do is look at all the videos that are out there over the last few years of people who've been shot during traffic stops that have escalated into something very different, to know full well that if you are a person of color and you are pulled over, the likelihood of you having a different experience is significant 
and one uh, an experience that may well turn into something like you just described and to be a mom to send their kids out at night uh, in a car and not know what would happen to them under those circumstances must be terrifying and i think people have had enough of that is there anything, is there anything uh, legislatively or through the prosecutorial um, situation that, that can maybe uh, mitigate this circumstance? Is it, what, what suggestions would you have as to how we address this in a way that could be uh, manageable for both sides? That's a tough one. You know, that would require significant thought. And, and let, let me tell you this, that there is a push uh, from the Salt Lake District Attorney's Office to uh, pass a bill in the next legislature to have grand juries decide what to do in uh, police shootings, just like what was done with, with Breonna Taylor this week. Uh, the belief is among prosecutors that other police officers who witness these events take place would be more forthcoming and more honest if placed under oath uh, behind closed doors with a grand jury. And it's so that there would be perhaps more prosecutions of these types of situations. Uh, that, that remains to be seen. I don't know if there's any empirical evidence to back up any of that theory, but that's one of the ways they intend to approach it. Another way that the legal system has approached this is uh, the Utah Sentencing Commission has enacted a rule that says now at sentencing, uh, you are permitted as a defense attorney uh, to argue racial disparity as a grounds for mitigation of punishment if you're representing a person of color, that people of color are treated differently by the legal system than people who are not. I, I feel like that's one of those things where it's a duh moment. Of course, it's been that way for as long as I can remember. Do you feel like the legal system is kind of catching up and realizing that that is in fact a truth? Yeah, I mean, it puts it puts the stamp of approval on it. Uh, it's it's to alert judges that 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 is a valid argument and and don't contend that it's not relevant to what it is that you're about to do to a particular individual, and and judges will follow those sorts of guidelines. Uh, the, the worry I have about that is that this person's already been convicted, so. What I'm hoping to uh, see before, you know, it gets to that point, right? Because that's, that's not quite the worst case scenario, but it's still pretty awful to be uh, sentenced to be behind bars. What I'm wondering is, is there a way that, uh, going back to the mental illness example, that uh, police can, I don't know, uh, law enforcement can understand the, the, the truth that is, there is typical disparity in the way uh, they handle situations with people of color and those who are not, and, and, and say to themselves, how can I de-escalate de this? How can I make this a situation that is as innocuous as possible under the circumstances? Sure, and I, and I think that starts with who you hire. I think it starts with, with hiring more people of color to be police officers. I think it's, it's you make the screening uh, more intensified to hopefully weed out people who have uh, pre-existing racist attitudes uh, who become police officers, that those people don't get to that point. And then once you have hired people who you feel have the potential to realize that everyone should be treated the same, that you continue to, tr to train them uh, in that regard throughout the time that they're, they are police officers. I'm quite certain that, that police officers are required to undergo uh, training every year 
this sort of training ought to be part of it. The, the training to recognize that uh, everyone, the law treats everyone the same. And, and you, even though we know that it doesn't work that way, that the law itself is colorblind. It is. Whether it's employed that way or not is an entirely different issue. But it should be. And people should be trained to recognize that. What I want to ask you is that Amy did a show recently, and I, unfortunately I wasn't able to uh, be there with her. She had, uh, and in with her actually, uh, to talk to uh, two members of the Salt Lake City Police Department, one of whom was uh, a veteran of over 10 years. And he said in his career that he'd never met a racist police officer. And unfortunately I wasn't there to, because to, the moment I heard that, I'm like, my head almost exploded. Uh, I just feel like that's... I, I've been around 55 years almost, and there's no way I can tell somebody that I haven't met a racist black person. You know, it's just, that's just ridiculous. But if, if, if people aren't willing to recognize that, how do we help uh, change the circumstance? Well, it's going to be a long process, let's face it. And, and I don't know who that person was, and I'm not going to disparage him. I don't know what his background is or her background. I don't know anything about that circumstance. Uh, but, but that is sort of a ridiculous statement without question. Uh, and that goes back to my suggestion that I think that what we need to do is to screen people at the outset when we hire them uh, and make a hiring determination as to whether people are so infested with racial bias that they just would never make a good police officer. We all have our biases. Uh, the question is how we deal with them. Do we recognize that we have them? Uh, and to what degree do they permeate our judgment? That's we need to screen out people that <clears throat> if people can't overcome their, their hatred for other people, then they don't need to be police officers. I, I, from uh, from uh, your, mouth your mouth to God's ears. ears. Thank you, Ed, for joining us. I appreciate your insights today. Okay, it was good talking to you. You're listening to Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, and this is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Today I'm joined by, in this particular episode, I'm joined by Juliet Carlisle. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Utah. And today we'll be talking about the political implications of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and what uh, we should expect in the coming months, uh, from the tri uh, in the coming weeks, from the Trump administration as it looks to nominate her replacement. And I want to say thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Professor Carlisle. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, uh, look, I don't have to tell you, you, you watch political uh, analysis uh, and, and, and interesting, uh, with some interest across this country. When, uh, when you uh, found out that uh, Justice Ginsburg had passed, what were your thoughts? Uh, it was, my heart sunk. I just, you know, sometimes... Um, you hear or see on the news of someone's passing, but then it was like a hoax. And so I was just hoping that this was perhaps a hoax. And I, <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe it um, initially. And um, I, I had really hoped that she could just hold on until the election. I knew she wasn't doing well health-wise, right? We all sort of did. And then there was movement uh, afoot by the Trump administration a couple weeks ago about talking about Supreme Court nominees. And so my my attention sort of peaked and I sort of, you know, thought, like, where are we? You know, what's 
something's something's up, right? Meaning like Ginsburg is probably not as well as we are hoping, right? That she is, um, there's going to be some sort of replacement. There's going to be, you know, she's, she could very well be quite ill. Um, and as it turns out, oh, that was kind of true. She had been in the hospital more recently. And, um, you know, so uh, it's one of those things where you knew she understood what the stakes were. And yeah. she was trying as best she could to, you know, prevent that from happening. However, you know, uh, Father Time, you know, is undefeated. He, he knows when it's your time <laughs> and yeah. when that happens. So now that this, uh, have, have you seen this, what do you, what do you uh, think of when you consider her legacy uh, as a jurist, particularly as it relates to all of what she's done in her career leading up to her time on the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, uh, she is a person whose legacy uh, is one of which, uh, of where she changed the law, right? She she changed the law, but she also really um, transformed the lives of men and women by by changing their roles or our understanding of men's and women's roles in society. And her fight for equality, you know, transcends the law, um, but certainly um, the legal uh, victories on equality are um, are so strong and and you know such a large component of her legacy, um, and that's really what's I think made her a feminist icon is how she really worked on equality, not just for women but for men. So that is something that that feminists really understand about her legacy. So when you, when you look at uh, trying to talk about big shoes to fill, though she was a small woman in stature, she certainly her, her, her contributions to, uh, to the law and to our country are you know, enormous. What would it take to fill shoes like that on the court? Oh, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think, um, I think it's somebody who really understands, um, again, if we were talking about a feminist uh, and her legacy as a feminist, it would take somebody as strong as that and somebody to fight for equality, not just necessarily between genders, but uh, you know, other forms of discrimination. Um, and uh, you know, her early career, or, you know, part of her early legal career was as um, somebody who worked with the ACLU. And we know that the ACLU, um, you know, challenges discrimination of all sorts. Uh, and so somebody that really sees uh, the law and statutes um, that are discriminatory and fights to change them. And that's, that's what we, I think a lot of feminists would hope for. Um, again, not just gender equality, the fight for gender equality, but equality writ large. So, and, and also, you know, though the court is supposed to be, you know, nonpartisan, we, we know that that's entirely true. Um, but in terms of her um, place on the uh, court as it, before she passed, how does her, uh, rep I mean, having to replace her, 
how will that change the dynamics of the Supreme Court? So it would change it dramatically if Trump was to appoint somebody. The two people that seem to have filtered to the top of the list, um, one of them, uh, a female named Amy Coney Barrett, and the other, Barbara Lagoa, are both strong conservatives. Um, And uh, that would dramatically tilt uh, the balance of the court in favor of conservative jurisprudence. And not only that, but the two women that, uh, again, are top of Trump's list are fairly young. So it has the potential to alter the balance of the court for decades. And, you know, one thing that I think is worth saying is that, you know, we we like to believe as as sort of a core value as an American that our court is nonpartisan. Is it, and as you said, we know that's not true, and that that's absolutely correct statement. Um, but we also value this idea of democracy, and when we look at the court, we recognize, you know, if you look close enough, and if you understand some of the Um, components of of how nominations are made, you can really see how undemocratic it is, right? Here's a president who lost the popular vote. Um, Here's, you know, senators who are voted in by less than a majority. Here are Americans expressing, uh, you know, over a majority of Americans expressing the desire that the next president... um, elect or nominate the uh, the next justice. So there are so many elements to the court that are really undemocratic. And I think that at this moment, we see some of those really undemocratic components. Um, and it's, I think it sort of creates this tension in, in our minds, again, when we value these sort of democratic institutions that the Supreme Court is not extraordinarily democratic. When we uh, come back, I want to ask a little bit more about partisanship and, and the role it plays in the process, and also ask for your insights on what to expect, you know, and as we kind of watch this play out and if there's uh, some ideas we should look for. Uh, we're speaking today with Juliet Carlisle, Associate Professor of Political Science at the U of U, and you're listening to Voices of Reason. Jason Lee, and this is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, joined today by Juliet Carlisle, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Utah. Today we're talking about the political implications of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and what we should expect in the coming weeks as the Trump administration looks to potentially nominate her replacement. And uh, in this segment, I wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, and you kind of led up to that, you know, there is partisanship in the Supreme Court, though it's not really supposed to be that way. And uh, as you described, uh, potentially this could become a more conservative court and then have its impact go long into the future. And in some ways, this is kind of uh, tilting the scales because for a long time it had been a somewhat liberal court. Is that right? 
Yeah, there were there were moments when it was more recently. It's been fairly balanced. I mean, you have the chief justice who sometimes would surprisingly side with liberals on certain decisions. And I think, you know, I'm not a I'm not a court scholar, but my sort of interpretation of that is that the chief justice really values the legitimacy of the institution. And so, you know, perhaps his decisions to to side with liberals in certain cases that might have been a little bit surprising for people are really to uh, to uh, illustrate or to communicate the court's legitimacy. And, and in some ways, you can think about that in terms of what the majority of American people want. You know, the court is, in a lot of ways, separate from the American people um, and really ruled by public opinion. But in reality, we see that if we track public opinion over the course of time, that when public opinion shifts on an issue, you know, think about something like civil rights. Mm -hmm. The court usually uh, sort of adjusts. Uh, it doesn't want to be out of step in large part with a vast majority of Americans. So there is some congruence that we see at, at historical sort of uh, shifts in public opinion regarding issues. If you think about something like same-sex marriage, right? So same-sex marriage, um, one of the most rapid transitions we've seen of public opinion from, you know, majorities of Americans not supporting it to shifting to, you know, overwhelming majorities of Americans supporting it and how the court really, um, uh, you know, legalized right. same-sex marriage and sort of, you know, conformed or, or became more congruent with, with the public. It legalized and legitimized in, in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. 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 So, uh, look, I, and I, maybe the, uh, the court isn't your bailiwick, but I know American politics is. It, it, so this yeah. is, if, if ever there was a political football, this is it. I'm just going to ask you straight out. Uh, what in the world uh, are we going to have to watch uh, in the next little while? Yeah, I mean, this is extraordinarily contentious. Um, there are a couple things to watch. Uh, one, obviously, is Mitch McConnell, right? Uh, Mitch McConnell um, is a majority leader of the Senate, so he has a lot of control over what the Senate decides. Um, he is, his legacy so far is really a legacy of packing the courts, right? And we we can we can go back to 2016, but we can also go back, you know, even before that, when there were a lot of just federal seats that uh, Obama couldn't fill because uh, the Senate wouldn't, you know, vote or con confirm those nominees. So we saw it most um, uh, visible in. Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland um, early in uh, 2016, uh, you know, quite a distance prior to the 2016 election. And he, um, you know, Mitch McConnell said, we will not even meet with the nominees. And he didn't. Um, and the Senate didn't. The Republicans didn't. 
Um, but now, you know, um, just shortly after the news of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, uh, Mitch McConnell came out and said, we, of course, would vote <laughs> on a nominee. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of frustration among especially voters who see this and, and politicians too on especially the liberal side who see this as pure hypocrisy because the republicans took a stance in 2016 that um that if the primary process had already started that um they shouldn't uh, nominate or uh, vote on uh, a nominee. A nominee. Yeah. Right. And so we see the, a complete about face. But that's because, let's be honest, I mean, first of all, what they were saying before was totally disingenuous. Uh, Mitch McConnell is a political genius and, in my opinion, a loathsome person otherwise, because he doesn't care about the hypocrisy. And they, they all know that. But yes, they, they were, right. But they used it to their political advantage, which, by the way, is, is kind of the way the game is set up. It, I mean, absolutely. I don't like it, but it is true. Yeah. So if you think about the rules of the game, there's nothing about the rule. Like, they're just going by the rules. That's now, right. here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. There are norms in the Senate, right? There are, these are states people Supposedly. who, right, who, and, but this is a more polarized America. This is a more, more polarized time. But there are particular sort of behaviors there's 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 a gentle person uh mentality right is that we sort of operate above the political fray i mean again that's not necessarily true but if you imagine working with 99 other people for you know 20 years it's a tight club and so there's this sort of often in this compared to the house there's this expectation of sort of uh you know gentlemanly or gentle personly behavior now again we see a lot of of people thumbing their nose at it and what this then lays out is what are democrats gonna do and this sort of goes to brinksmanship if mitch mcconnell um holds a vote on the nominee and this person is you know seated either before or after the election, which could be really problematic um, if it's held after the election during their lame duck period, that could be, that could really risk legitimacy of the courts and, and, and Republicans, right? Um, and so it really calls Democrats uh, to task and asks of them, okay, what are you gonna do? And as Schumer has said, there's nothing off the table. Right. Well, I would like to see, to be honest with you, uh, I always feel like there's a, a, a big chance for a recess appointment, which wouldn't mean any, this is all political theater then. But I, um, I will say that I, my last question for you, because I don't, I don't want to say no more. Do you think they seat somebody uh, before the next president uh, takes office? So that's a great question. So if we think about what could happen prior to the election, the Senate is not actually... Um, their calendar, I think, um, you know, there's there's probably less than two weeks on the calendar for them to do anything, um, you know, th that they're in session before the election. So that's a really limited time to really make any moves. Again, you would hope that if circumstances 
occur where Biden wins the election and perhaps the Senate flips to a Democratic majority, um, you would hope that Republicans would respect the institution enough to, to, to hold back on voting, right? I mean, we already have two people, Murkowski and Collins, who have come out saying that they desire the vote to wait until the next president um, is, is inaugurated. But there's other people who, you know, could possibly change their perspective. Romney is one. I mean, he recently came out and said we should vote on them, which was, I think, surprising to, to some people. people. Yeah, um, because he has not been one to shirk at going up against Trump. Um, but maybe if there's this push by McConnell in this lame duck period after the election, but before the inauguration, before the new Senate is seated, that that people might, you know, people might like Romney might say, OK, now we should wait, you know, uh, especially if the majority flips to Democrats in the Senate, that it really, again, calls into question the legitimacy, not only of the Senate, but of that nominee. Were they a, a legitimate uh, nominee? Is that a legitimate vote? We'll have to see. Listen, uh, I want to say thank you to uh, Professor Julia Carlisle, a political science professor at the U of U. And uh, join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project Voices of Reason. If you have any comment about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of The Loud Mouth Project. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.